So if you want to open your Bible to John 6, and we will be in verses 16 to 21, it'll be on the screen as well. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. After they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. God. So you'll hear it a number of times this morning. Um, Happy Mother's Day. Right? You're welcome. Happy Mother's Day, Brandy. It's a... it's, it's one of those things when, when Walt was sharing that in first service about the fact that his mom was doing an exercise class, it was probably the first time it dawned on me, I don't think my mom has ever like done an exercise thing in her life. <laughs> I really don't. And you might go, well, she's 88, and it's just a little bit of a different generation. And yeah, that is actually really, really true. Brandon Reitz was sitting behind me, and you know, when I have a thought, I have to tell somebody. So I literally turned around and went, I bet you my mom has never done like an exercise class. And then he said, really? Like not even back in the 80s, like with those weird videos? And I went, yeah, that has never happened. <laughs> like never. And if it did, man, I am not in the house. You know, it's, uh, it's yeah, my mom just never actually did that. I don't know why. Wonderful, godly woman. Um, I, I, I guess the more I thought about it, I thought she was too busy doing spiritual exercises. We are in John chapter 6, and this is a lengthy chapter. Most of it is a sermon, um, divided up into somewhat three, maybe four parts. And last week we began, Feeding of the 5,000, recorded in all four of the Gospels, the only miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels. And in that story, we, we see how um, everything develops. And then this, this morning, just a few short verses, it's a little bit of this interlude where the disciples set out by themselves and they encounter Jesus. And um, he speaks to them about who he is and he interjects what his presence means into their lives. And that's really what we're gonna be wrestling with this morning, what we're gonna be dealing with this morning, what we're gonna be reflecting on this morning, is that the presence of God in the world, but not generically, like, I mean, in your life, does something. It provides perspective. It creates clarity and focus. Because the world is real. Um, unlike some religious ideas, not all religious ideas are the same. I don't believe all religious ideas are equally true. I don't believe in what is known as perspectivalism, which is that it's all a matter of perspective. Sure, we all have different perspectives. Doesn't mean we're all right or we're all exactly on the same page or that they're all true. I don't believe that. I just don't. But the one thing that seems to be very, 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 very um, real are the problems and difficulties of this life. And you know them to be true 
Like intellectually, you know that the problems are real, that the dangers are real, that the difficulties are real. But you also know them to be true. Like you know the, the fear to the problem, to the difficulty, to the hardship, to the pain. And so I think it's good since we are people who believe in the truth. The truth is there is a lot to fear. And I believe that. I believe the Bible actually teaches that. That there is a lot to fear. That unlike other religions that really consider the whole concept of the difficulties of this, to like to be, of this life to be somewhat illusory or illusionary. Actually, I just go, really? Like, I don't believe that. Like my heart tells me that's not true. My mind tells me that's not true. Like I don't, I don't have a tendency to just make things up. So I, I believe these things are real. I, I can't wait till the day where um, I don't have to always refer back to the most recent difficulty, um, but I think it's still the pandemic, right? Because when I talk about just the difficulties and obstacles and, and fears, a lot of us go this, in this direction. I mean, literally, as I was preaching this sermon after first service, and I was trying to catch somebody that, I don't think they were trying to avoid me, but they, they leave early, so I kind of stick out, and I'm, I'm kind of running, and I catch them. I happen to stumble into a young lady who's still recovering from COVID. It wasn't tragic, but it was, she was still recovering, and she said, first of all, thank you for the message. Second of all, when you began to talk about it, I just, I felt something happening inside of me. I know how she feels. I didn't go, oh, you know what, that's not true. That's not real. Yeah, it is. It's totally real. It's totally true. Different responses to it. But it makes no sense that you would just deny it. I I wonder, I, I think it... I think my whole response to the last few years to the pandemic would be very, very different if I didn't have a good friend whose life was completely changed by it. And if I didn't have good friends who are dealing with loss, like real loss. And so I get it. Don't tell me that those, those fears aren't real. You guys heard about inflation? It's not just an economic concept. It can be as simple as, so I had some college students over to my house the other day and decided to make them something to eat and I hear college students like bacon because they're human. And so I went to buy bacon and the new process, I don't know if you bought bacon lately, the new process is you pick your bacon, then you go to the loan department and you get a loan (laughs) and then you sign the paperwork um, literally, I, either myself or Andrea, one of us is going to have to get a part-time job to try to pay back um, the bacon that you guys ate. Thank you very much, college students. Um, but literally, like, it's, it's expensive. I had a friend that's just describing how much gas is getting, and he said, man, it's really, really hard. You know, we have five cars. And I went, well, then it can't be that bad. <laughs> like, I know it's complicated, but say that again. You have five cars. Yeah, Elon Musk's not having a hard time with gas prices. Anyway... Um, 
But that's, I'm not talking about that kind of inflation. I'm not talking about it theoretically. I'm not talking about it in terms of like, yeah, bacon prices are up. I'm talking about like you're scared. And your fear is real. It's not even funny to say, yeah, I have way too much month at the end of my money. <laughs> it's not funny. You're not laughing. And so these things are real. And relationships all around us are like intention or broken. And, and first of all, I want to say that for those of you that, that believe, and, and we really need to do a better job of, of speaking the truth, literally the truth is not that Christians have the same divorce rates as everybody else. That's actually not true. Particularly when they're dealing with people who are actively engaged in faith. Not that that, there's, I'll say this. Every, every time I get to preach that somehow it can be misunderstood, we don't believe in magic. We don't believe in quick fixes. We believe in the power of God, the power of his word, the power of his spirit, the power of his community, right? The power of following him. That's what we believe. And, and actually, like those people who are following Christ and engaging Christ are less likely to experience the trauma of divorce. But either way, it's, Strained relationships and broken relationships and you're scared. And what I will never say to you is, I don't know why you're afraid. I don't think I've ever said that. Maybe because I've struggled with this. You want to talk about it? I'll talk about it. I won't be able to get everything into the sermon, but you want to sit down and talk about what it's like um, to, be, to be scared or to be terrified or um, to literally have every thought completely paralyzed by one thought that you know doesn't make sense, but I'm having a hard time getting around it. Childhood trauma, sure. Just to get it. It gets it. it like it understands. And, and nowhere does the Bible try to say that the fears that you have make no sense. No, the Bible actually, I think, would make it very, very clear there is a lot to fear. In our story today, the disciples have experienced Jesus demonstrating his power by feeding the 5,000, something nobody else does, but he does. The, the disciples don't do this. We talked about this last week, but he does it. He demonstrates, watch this, power over his creation, and he multiplies bread and fish until everyone has eaten, until they're completely satisfied. Like manna from heaven, Jesus feeds the multitude to the end of their, uh, their, end of their desires. He satisfies them. And they, they get it somewhat. This is the one who can take care of our needs and our problems. And then they don't get it. Let us come and make him king by force. That is such a religious game. You get enough of God that you want him. Yeah, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. How can I get him to work for me? How can I get him on my payroll? How can I get him to solve my problems? And so many people have made confessions of faith, inviting Jesus into their heart, or walking down, and then getting back out. And, and truly, they're somewhere involved, and I don't even know how much we're fully aware of this, just trying to get Jesus into our back pocket. That was last week's message. The idolatry of Jesus. 
And we should be afraid of it. So when the crowd comes and tries to make him king by force, Jesus will have none of it. Just like when, when Peter confronts Jesus, when Jesus says, I'm, I'm the Messiah, and what happens to the Messiah is that he is betrayed and he suffers and he dies and then he rises. And Peter says, it will never be that way. And his response is, get behind me, Satan. And the crowd comes and they make a bold confession like Peter, you are the promised one of God. You are the great prophet. Get in our pocket. And Jesus says, get away from me, you satanic crowd. He doesn't say that literally, but it's the same he, it's, not, it's not permitted by him. And so just like he was alone and they pursue him, verse 15 kind of ends with that same thing. He, they come by force. Jesus knows this. He perceives this. And he withdraws again to the mountain, leaving the crowd to their religiosity, to their half-truth but misunderstanding of who Jesus Christ is. And he leaves the disciples too. And he goes off to the mountain again by himself. It is at that point in time, the sermon hasn't come and John's the only one that's going to give the sermon, that the disciples then go down to the sea where their boat is and they're waiting for him. And the text makes it clear that the night comes, which is a very strong concept in John Night comes, darkness, which by the way, the darkness will not be able to overcome him. Darkness comes and the disciples are alone by themselves. Jesus has not yet come. And so they get into the boat and they start heading to Capernaum by themselves. And while that happens, a very real problem arises. Now, you need to know this. So follow this, right? Every... Uh, only, the only miracle that is found in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. The walking on the water is found in this Gospel. Huh. So which one doesn't have it? Luke doesn't have it. Luke doesn't mention Jesus walking on the water. By the way, this is not the calming of the storm. That's another one. Matthew 8. Where Jesus and the disciples are, are on the sea and a storm picks up. I mean, it was when we were there one time, Justin was about to start preaching. Remember this, Ryan? Justin's about to start preaching and um, we're in this area, just not too far from Capernaum, and all of a sudden, the wind starts picking up, and I thought, okay, this is awesome. <laughs> like, this is exactly, and literally by the time we were done, it wasn't quite like, we thought we were going to die, and Jesus came and said, no, 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 it wasn't that. But very quickly, it got, not crazy, it got fun. Waves moving around. I'm like, oh, this is what happens. So the disciples get in the boat. It's not the storm that Jesus calms. And I want you to realize that this isn't what they're afraid of. Look at, look at the text, verses 18 and 19. A high wind arose, and, they, and the sea began to churn. And after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. Now there's something to fear. It's not, the, it's not the storm, it's not the water, it's not the boat, not their inability to swim, their inability, it's, it's the one that's walking on the sea, the one who turned nothing, um, multiplied bread, made it out of nothing, it doesn't matter, he made everything out of nothing. For those of you that are like, how did he do that miracle? Seriously? How did he create earth? How did he make the sun with a word? And he was coming near the boat. 
and they were afraid. And I'll be honest with you, there's actually something to be afraid of. And it's not the storm. This isn't that story. By the way, it's outside of the, the scope of this text, and therefore I'm going to leave it outside the scope of my message. Um, you know what happens in the story. It's the same story where, and Matthew is the only one who includes it, which is interesting. Matthew is the only one that includes it. So the, sto- the walking on the waters, Matthew, Mark, and John. Matthew, Mark, John. Matthew is the only one that has the story. Remember Peter gets out, begins to sink. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure John remembers it. Nowhere into the, it's not a part of the reason. He, he, he doesn't want anything to be distracting from the issue. The issue is not what Peter did. The issue is not, man, we really need to learn to get out of the boat so we can be Jesus to our friends. <laughs> That's not what the point of the story is. The point of the story is, and there was one that came walking on the water, and um, he, is, he is God. That's the point of the story, which will then be supported by this message. Unless you eat this bread and drink this cup, and you, you can have no part of me, you can have no part of God, and unless you totally take your life and fold it into mine, this is next week's message, fold it into mine, then you can have no part of who God is. That's a bold statement. Yeah, I was the one that was walking on the water, and they're afraid. And I would even tell you, rightly so. Rightly so. This is what the Bible teaches, and you kind of know it to be true. I think we've done a poor job. I mean that me, first of all. Um, and then next, kind of blame our entire teaching team. Um, and then I, I blame the entire American church and the Western church. It just seems to be something that has happened. It just does. And you, you can tell me I'm wrong. I went back and I looked, and I really can't find. We don't talk a lot about fear anymore the way the Bible does. This has, by the way, been happening for hundreds of years. We don't talk about fear the same way anymore, a little bit because of the psychologizing of self and the psychologizing of faith, but it, literally it's, it's, being, it's being reoriented in a completely different way. I'm indebted to Michael Reeves from London, in terms of the, from Wales, from the, the work that he is doing right now, trying to, um, to reinvigorate a biblical understanding of what fear is, because the disciples are rightly afraid, not of the water, not of the storm, but of the one walking on the water because the Bible teaches that the most important one to fear is God. And it uses that language. I know we don't like that language. Maybe because we're afraid that if somebody fears God, that they won't love him. Or if somebody fears God, that it'll just become one more barrier, and there's too many barriers anyway. And so we, we try to, to create, we try to, um, to, to reorient, we try to literally to redefine and re-explain in the stories that we tell. And, and literally, when we think about God, we, we want to say, we just do, it starts with our kids, um, you don't need to be afraid of him, he loves you. Don't, don't be afraid of him, he loves you. Which is interesting, because one of my favorite texts I've learned to love, again, thank you, Dr. Reeves, God says in the book of Jeremiah, I am going to show you how much I love you. And I'm going to love you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to love you. And you will literally be afraid of how much I love you. You will learn to fear me because of my love of you. What? That is so not the way that we talk about it. I agree. By the way, can I just say that we're not doing super well with the fear meter, correct? We're not. As a society. It's not like we're nailing this. And, and I believe it's true that one of, the, one of the reasons why, lots of reasons, one of the reasons why is because we've lost a fear of God. The more that we remove God from the equation, 
I, I would just, and by the way, they predicted this hundreds of years ago, as the Puritans did, is that the more that we remove God from the equation and the more you don't know what to fear, you will end up being afraid of everything. Boy, were they right. Not knowing the fear of the Lord is to then be under the, the temptation to be absolutely afraid of everything. That's what the Bible actually predicts. And, and that's what we see. We are to be, um, we, we are to have. The Bible doesn't say we should be afraid of him, but the Bible does say that the beginning of, this, of wisdom, the beginning of understanding, the beginning of, of right orientation in the world is to, is to fear the Lord. So does that mean we should just, you know, nail-biting, you know, just kind of like this? No. Oh, so you're just talking about like this reverential respect? No. <laughs> you know what we always get wrong? We only know how to deal with it like this way and this way. <laughs> and the answer is that it's somewhere in here. I promise you it means more than just, hello, sir. And yet it clearly is not some kind of a, I don't want to be with you. No, not if you love him. That's why I think it's interesting. I think I know what it's like to love someone and to be loved by someone so much that you become afraid, that you know to fear. Have you ever just thought about the amount of love that somebody has given you and you're just so afraid it's going to end? So afraid it's not real. So afraid it's not true. And so you begin to even build barriers in your life to try to protect yourself. And here's the beauty of it. God will never fail you. Ever. The love that he has for you is real and true. That it should... I want to use the right words this morning that it should produce the fear of the Lord in you. That's why I think it's important that when you look at the Bible, what happens when, when people, and they don't just stumble in, but sometimes they stumble upon the presence of God and the automatic reaction is to the knees. A crying out. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I am now in the presence of the Lord. I am being ripped, this is Isaiah. I'm being ripped apart, Isaiah 6. I'm being torn apart by the presence of God. It is too great for me. And God reaches down and there's a censure. This thing picks up these fiery coals and it cleans him, it cleans his mouth. And, and he stays in the presence of God, but God approaches him. See, I, I think that there is something broken in our parenting and in our relationships when we so don't allow the truth of Scripture, we, we, treat, we create, sadly, some G-rated version. It does not need your help. Please do not try to clean this up. You will literally undo it. You undo its power by domesticating its maker. You deny its power by trying to, to, to make it somehow like a version that you're more comfortable with. Be it Jesus, be it God, be it the Spirit, be it life. But literally, what happens in the Bible, whether it's John or Moses or Isaiah, is they go to their knees and then the Lord interjects and says, 
Do not be afraid. And you know what you and I do? We, we never allow, by the way that we speak about God and the way that we disciple our friends and disciple our spouses and are discipled by our spouses, we never allow the encounter because we so don't want people to be afraid of God that we don't tell the full story about who he is or the full story about who we are. But the biblical narrative is I'm in the presence of God, I now understand how everything is and I am terrified by him and then he speaks, do not be afraid. Think about that. That means that you and I have a tendency to try to deal with our fear not in the presence of God. Not with the presence of God, but we go other pla- I go other places. I believe that so much of my fear is not only circumstantially created, but then is circumstantially re- resolved. Is that you? It's circumstantially resolved. Well, if my marriage gets right, then I'll be okay. If my health gets right, or her health gets right, or my mom's health gets right, well, then I'll be okay. And so everything is circumstantial. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually offers something that is so much greater than a circumstantial understanding. It is the ongoing, always, ever-present presence of God. Do not fear, for it is me. I am here. Now, now by the way, I need you to understand that Again, I don't believe in quick fixes. I don't believe in magic. I believe there is going to be this this constant struggle, but it is the engagement that matters. I I know that you and I, at least I, try to reorient ourselves by circumstances. We try to find peace and comfort in circumstances, and so we go through this list of check marks, and I'm just saying that what the Bible says, what the Bible teaches, is that we find um, a reorientation of ourselves. We, We find a focusing of our attention on Jesus, And that becomes the resolution. And it doesn't mean that once you have it, it's just all better. You know what I find interesting is that I think sometimes we read too much into these stories. And you don't have to be a preacher to do it. We're just better at it. Just kind of reading stuff into it. I don't think what the story is teaching is that the disciples are afraid of Jesus. And he comes and he says, it's me. And then they go, okay, I feel better now. Like that, that's how we tell the stories. Well, I was afraid, and then I prayed, and then I felt peace. Like I, I don't, I don't that, that may happen sometimes. I don't think that's life. I'll be honest with you. I just don't think that's life. I think, honestly, what probably happened was they're afraid, and Jesus says, it is I, and they're going, okay, no, that's good. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, thank you. Why don't you get in the boat? And, the, and they're still trying to deal with him. They're still trying to understand who he is and his magnitude. Go back and look at it. It's not like the disciples, the disciples, once Jesus speaks, they just get it. They don't. You think they emotively get it? You think they all of a sudden understand it? So when Jesus says, do not be afraid, they go, okay, thanks, peace. But, but that doesn't mean that they don't get it. Now, isn't that life? How are you doing with fear? Good, not good, terrible, better, not good, but better, but really not good. But I'm doing better, but uh, also not good. But I'm actually doing a little bit better, but not good, but better, mostly better, and also sometimes not good. By the way, I I really think that's life. The, the, The part that the Bible says 
that I don't think we're doing a good enough job of as a community. We will put up with a lot of things. And when I say that, meaning we won't put up with a lot of things. If I were to act in an unloving way, that's not Christian. If I were to act in a prejudiced way, that's not Christian. By the way, you're right to do it. But I've noticed that when it comes to fear, oh, no, I understand your circumstances. Again, I'm intentionally choosing my words this morning and I'm inviting any kind of email conversation and coffee that will follow. Truly, I mean it. When it comes to how the Bible describes fear, it might be understandable, but it's not welcomed. And it appears that the presence of Jesus reorients things. Um, I, I think she won't mind if I share this. My youngest sister really wrestles with lots of things and, and, and fear being one of them. And I said, I've shared that. It's a bit of a family struggle that we have. And I've had a lot of conversations with her and she needs lots of fixes. I mean, lots of things to help her with this. And in one of our conversations, I, just, I said to her, not offering a quick fix, tears in our eyes, but Carolyn... Like, I want to know, like, the presence of Jesus, the promised presence of Jesus, the reality of Jesus, the comforting of his spirit, that does something, right? And I'm asking a question. And she said, yes, it does. I don't hear a lot about that in our new day and age where we want to celebrate authenticity and struggle and difficulty. I think we're guilty of celebrating fear. And not the right kind. What the Bible says is that with the presence of Jesus, there's nothing to fear. And here's how it enters into the text. Look at chapter 6, verse 20. And he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. That statement, it is I, is a really powerful term in the Greek. Ego and me. I, I am. Do you hear it? I, ego, I am a me. Some scholars believe it's kind of like it's translated here. I usually like the CSB. This one, I, I don't know if I'm really into it. Um, it is I. It, it sounds like, hey, by the way, it's me. Just, just so you know. Hi, it's Jesus. Just I'm here. I think it's more than that. I think the context seems to make it more than that. He's not going to say, hey, by the way, um, not only did I feed you, but now I want to share with you. I've got some really great suggestions for your life. And, uh, and by the way, I'm really, really insightful, and I'm, I'm here to kind of help you with some struggles and difficulties. So I'm going to give you some, some tips, and uh, hopefully they work for you. Now, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and by the way, they, they lose their minds. Like, you'd have to walk on water for us to believe this stuff about you, sir. Literally, I, I think he's saying, I, I am. I am. Just kind of echoing this bold statement. Like, I need you to know that you are right to be afraid because I am God. So your fear is justified. And now that I'm here in your presence, I want you to know I come in peace. 
Do not be afraid. Is that not awesome? Like Jesus approaches you, and if you have your senses about you, and you know how messed up you are, and you know about even all the real fears, real fears that happen in life, then the presence of Jesus comes and he says, I am, and I want you to know I come in peace. And I can feed you, and I can give you water to drink. Um, I control the winds and the waves. And there's nothing to be afraid of because I come in peace. And I'm not trying to pretend that everything is just going to work out. Think about it. Jesus' life is going to end tragically on Good Friday. And wonderfully, just three days later. So that's the point that he's trying to get at here. He says, it is I, do not be afraid. I am here, do not be afraid. And you and I get to work out what that means. Hear me, we get to work out what that means. Um, So I've probably been guilty. Again, the only way me and my generation know how to deal with things is by really boldly stating them. And I probably have done this when I was younger. I apologize, but I was younger. Can't do anything about it. You know, Bible says you shouldn't be afraid, and Jesus says do not fear and do not worry, in the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, so you really should stop doing that. I don't know what your problem is. Then I realized, wow, that's so not well explained. So the only way I know how to deal with things is to just throw the pendulum in the other direction. Yeah, we're all afraid, I get it. Yeah, it's just what we are, we're all afraid, and we're all going to die, so that's the good news, kind of, but it's... It's really, really bad, and it's kind of how I grew up, and my mom kind of, kind of fed into that, and in life circumstances, I had some pretty traumatic experiences as a kid, and I'm afraid all the time, and so that's what I do. I'm just afraid, and I get it, and Jesus is with us, and he cares for us, but it's a part of our lives. We're afraid, we're afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. And both are just well-intended foolishness on my behalf. But this is what the Bible says. I want to just read... As I kind of close, some Bible verses, and again, they're not magic, but they do reorient us. Most of them are in the Psalms. I, I would, we're going, they're going to be on the screen. Take a look at the chapter and verse, and then go back, but always read the whole thing. Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord. Yahweh is his name. The I am. You know, we, we wonder if God exists. His name literally means I exist. His name literally means I always am, I always will be. We're wondering, the only one that always has and always will be, we're wondering if he is. I am. It's more than ironic. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he rescued me from all of my fears. It doesn't say, and he rescued me from all of my problems and they all went away. He rescued me from my fears. You guys know Psalm 23, verse 4. Even when I go through the darkest valley, that's real, I fear no danger because I know it's going to get better. Because I know, for you are with me. I am, Jesus says, I am with you. And the I am is with you. And your rod and your staff, that which guides and that which protects, they comfort me. 
Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? See, it's the focus. When, when, when the Lord is my light and when the Lord is my salvation, seriously, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I dread? Now, you know what I love about this? It's an invitation. That's why I'm dead serious when I say, you want to talk about this? I want to talk about this. And not because I just have the answer, but I know who the answer is. And I love the conversation along the way. Like, let's, let's, let's do this. If God is who he is, tell me your problem. I promise I won't say it's not real. I promise. Actually, I'll, I'll even help. I'll share some of mine. And they're really real. And they're tearing me apart sometimes. But let's talk about this. If the Lord is our light and our salvation, whom shall we fear? I'm not just trying to put a quick fix on something. I want an answer to the question. If the Lord is, whom shall I fear? Well, the fears are real. No, 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 I'm there already. But if the Lord is, then should we not take comfort in this? Brothers and sisters, the answer is yes. That is the biblical response. And it's the response I'm learning to enjoy. If the Lord is the stronghold of our lives, seriously, I want to ask you a question. Who shall we dread? I'm not trying to heap guilt or anything. I, I'm asking an honest question. And you, you could even say, but I'm struggling. I get that too. Who shall we dread if the Lord is by our side? That, that conversation is needed in the home. The conversation is needed in so many places. Psalm 46, 1 through 3. I love this. God is our refuge and our strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid, though the earth trembles, though the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though the, though the waters churn, now roar, and they foam, and the mountains quake with turmoil. I am. Do not be afraid. And by the way, Jesus is really patient. Walking you through, walking with you, through your fears. John 14, we should get there in October, November, if I think. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And I do not give to you as the world gives, so do not let your hearts be troubled or fearful. And he gives us the spirit. So you don't have to pretend you're not afraid. I would also say to you, um, at the very center of the resolution of this is the presence of God and the indwelling of his spirit. And I'll say it again, I don't believe in magic or quick fixes. I believe in the long road of the reminder of and the indwelling presence of and the support of the people of God so that we can learn what it means to grow in a trust and a growing awareness that God is good and he is here. Psalm 115, 11. You who fear the Lord, trust in him. He is our or their help and shield. And I have to admit, every time I can never find any, like I mean no resolution to my fear, it's because I really don't trust the Lord. I don't trust that he has it. I don't trust that he's good enough. I am far more circumstantially driven than I ever want to admit. But the Bible says that he is our helper and our shield, and I believe that. 
The difference the Bible teaches is the presence of God. The difference is Jesus' presence in the disciples' lives. That's the difference. And it should be a difference to us. Not magic, not a quick fix, but a constant reminder that he is here. That he is here. And it matters. So therefore, in our, our time of reflection, here is what I would like us to reflect on as we get ready to engage him in bread and wine. And that is this. Work on it this week. Go back to it over and over again. Here's the question that I'm asking. How does the presence of Jesus, or sorry, the promise of Jesus' presence, how does the promise of Jesus' presence address your fears? How? If the answer is they don't do anything, then we need to talk about like who he is and we need to talk about what he has promised. If they're not connected. And I really believe that what sanctification looks like, which is just a word that explains a growing holiness, but it's not just like this holiness where I just, I, it, it's a growing in my faith and my trust in who Jesus Christ is. And I, I think it means that I ask when I am afraid, how does the promises, promise of Jesus' presence, how does that address this right now? This is what I'm afraid of. How does the promise of Jesus' presence, and don't just do an, well, I'm supposed to feel better, and then quit. No, that's not dealing with it. Work it out. Think it out. Talk it out. Pray it out. Find someone that loves Jesus more than you and talk about it. Pray about it. That's why I want to give you a wash, rinse, repeat model for this. It goes like this. Pray about your fear. Take it to the one who knows, to the I am. And then trust. Learn to trust him. And then reflect on what he has done. This is spiritual formation. Pray. God, here's where I'm at. God, here's what's going on. God, here's what I know about you. And it is just so hard. Teach me to trust you. Teach me to go to you when these things overwhelm me, when they disable me, when they literally, when they paralyze me. God, I give it to you. And then reflect. As that happens, we grow in our understanding of, therefore, this is what I would like for you to think about. And then as you leave, think about it this morning. So pray, how does the presence of Jesus address your fears? For a moment.